0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history, We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are beginning an ongoing series called Voices of Segregation. In these episodes, we hope to explore life in Tennessee in the time of segregation, a period in American history when the law of the land called for the separation of the races, under the landmark court case of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, segregation was deemed constitutional so long as separate but equal facilities were provided, a requirement that was rarely met in practice. Segregation ended with the passing of another landmark case, Brown v. Board of Education, in 1954. However, in practice, integration, especially in the schools, took much longer. In Murray County, schools were not integrated until 1969. Our guest today was a product of a segregated school in Columbia, Tennessee. Judge Randolph Baxter graduated from Carver Smith High School in 1963. He attended Tuskegee University and then the University of Akron School of Law. While there as an ROTC student, Mr. Baxter served his country in the Vietnam War from 1968 until 1971, achieving the rank of captain. He was awarded the Bronze Star for Valor, among other unit citations, while serving in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Upon his return, he completed his Doctor of Jurisprudence at the University of Akron and began a legal career that spanned another 40 years. Holding several important positions, he ended his legal career as Chief Justice of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court. He currently holds the position of President of AARP in the state of Ohio. Judge Baxter, welcome to History's Hook.
2: Thank you very much, and good morning.
1: Joining me in the studio today is my co-host, Murray County historian Joanne McClellan. Good morning to you, Joanne.
2: Good morning, Tom. And good morning,
3: Joanne. Good morning, Judge Baxter.
1: First off, Judge, tell us a little bit about growing up in Murray County. Uh, did you come from a large family? Well,
2: uh, I came from a, a blended family. My my father's first wife died when uh, he and his six children, to that first marriage, uh, lost their mother. And uh, the oldest was 14 at the time. Several years later, he met my mom, who had never been married. They were married 10 years before six of us came along. But our families have always been very, very close. And there were a total of 12 of us. Currently, uh, there are only two of us left, my youngest brother and myself. And uh, But it was a very loving family, and uh, we enjoyed each other's fellowship.
1: Huh. What did your parents do? Well, my dad uh, was a
2: farmer initially, and then he later became the... Uh, custodian of Columbia's White High School, uh, Central High, as it was known, or Columbia High School. And my mother was a domestic worker and also a cook at a white elementary school called McDowell there in Columbia.
1: Huh. So so they were um, part of the school system, employees of the school system, the, the white school system at the time. Um, Correct. How did your fa- parents feel about education, generally?
2: Well, like most parents, you want your kids to have a better fare at life than you had. And uh, even though my father uh, went no further than the third grade, my mom had an, a 10th grade education, but they had strong desires to see the children uh, go beyond where they were able to go. But you have to understand, my dad was born in 1893, and it was not uncommon for a lot of uh, people, people, uh, particularly of color, to drop out of school, to go and work, to help support the family. And my family was no different from
1: that. So your father was born in 1893. That's Correct. An, that's an incredible generational gap. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Was he from Murray County as well?
2: Native to Mary County, was no nonsense, but had a very high degree of respect from those living around us. And that always made me very proud of him.
1: Hard, hard working, it sounds like, and, and gaining respect because of that. Hard work always gains respect, uh, right? I, I think, Judge. <laughs> Let's talk about your education. Where did you uh, go to elementary school?
2: Uh, College Hill Elementary School, here in Columbia. And I might quickly add that my mom and my grandmother, they all uh, came through Col- uh, College Hill. That was the only black elementary school during their time. And from there... Uh, I went to Carver-Smith, which was a combined junior high, high school arrangement. And I graduated from there in 1963, July 5th,
1: 1963. Um, what were some of your most poignant memories of going to Carver-Smith School? What, what was it like to go to a segregated school in Columbia, Tennessee?
2: Well, it was an interesting uh, set of observations. One, with my father working uh, as the custodian for almost 40 years at uh, Central High, the white high school there in Columbia, uh, on weekends, many weekends, he would take his sons over to help him do what we would call decleaning cleaning on certain areas of the school, as well as uh, some lawn care during the summer months. And we had an opportunity to observe what the white students had compared to what we had at our schools in the uh, College Hill Elementary, as well as at Carver Smith. And we noticed that in earlier years, most of the textbooks we had had the names of the white high schools in them. So that told us that they had something new and we had their hand-me-downs. And that was an interesting observation. And I also remember one year while I was in junior high school, uh, the Tennessee Department of Education issued a report. And the essence of it was that the black students were three years behind their white counterparts. And that was very scarring psychologically. Hmm. I never forgot that. And, uh, when I entered college, my second year of college, I had an opportunity to study at Columbia university in New York, went over there. And I knew that was an Ivy league school, one of the top rated schools in the country. And I learned something. And this was a six week summer session, by the way, I learned that, uh, the only difference between the schools I attended and the schools others attended was a matter of application. I could perform well in any school as long as I dedicated myself to a serious commitment of study. And that's what I took away from those six weeks at Columbia. And uh,
1: So is that a belief system that you sort of came to on your own, or was that something... Uh, that was encouraged uh, from, from others around you, either family or teachers uh, as you, as you went through uh, the schooling process?
2: Well, I tell you, my family was a praying family and primarily God brought us through all of those difficult situations uh, during times of segregation. And so I first give him the credit, but uh, I tell you, um, and I mentioned the kind of uh, schooling that my parents had, they wanted the best. I remember asking my father when I finished high school, right before I finished high school, I said, Dad, are you able to uh, send me to college? I knew the answer before he replied. He says, you can read, right? I said, yes. He said, you can uh, write. I said, yes. He said, that's the best I can do. And fortunately, I received scholarship offers from some other schools uh, to attend their colleges, and that's how I was able to get into college. But uh, that... uh, six-week experience at uh, Columbia University in New York was a great benchmark in my mindset as to the importance of education. Uh,
1: applying yourself was the most important thing. It's fascinating to, to go back just a little bit that you're, you're learning at that point. It's not about the trappings of school necessarily. It's not about the kind of facilities you have. It's not necessarily about the The quality of the books that you have, it's what's in the mind and how you apply it, it sounds like to me. That's what I'm getting from from what you're saying.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I thought of something else, too. When I was in junior high school in an English lit course, our teacher uh, assigned different short stories for us to read and come back and give book reports on. And uh, I was assigned to read a story about the boy who was traded for a horse. And she just gave the title And I said, who in the world would do that to a kid? And as I read it, I learned that was the story of Dr. George Washington Carver, Mm -hmm. a noted scientist, inventor. And he taught at Tuskegee for about 40 years. He died in 43. And uh, he was hired there by a freed slave named Booker T. Washington, who had founded the school back in 1881. I was so impressed with the story of uh, George Washington Carver. It inspired me to want to study at Tuskegee. Uh, when I finished high school. And that's how I ended up attending uh, Tuskegee. Plus, they offered me some scholarship money to attend as well.
1: Sure. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, So legally speaking, Plessy versus Ferguson, the whole uh, legal transaction that makes segregation um, something uh, a part of the fabric of America. It, it really the the basis of it what justifies it in everyone's mind is this idea of separate but equal but in truth that equality was never there and, and I think it's very poignant at Columbia is a great example I think between Central High School and what Carver Smith had to offer as you said the books were sort of hand-me-down books uh, the old books from from that school but they were not sort of they were hammered down <laughs>
3: <laughs> they were they were hammered down throughout the county, of course, you know, I went to a country school and we had the um hammered down books from the white school up the road so but Randolph uh, you know we went to the same high school, and some right. of our some of our teachers were wonderful, and I remember some of the teachers that influenced me and helped me make my decision to go to college. What about you?
2: what I'm teachers- glad you mentioned that <laughs> i uh One thing that I could say about our teachers generally, they, too, were products of segregated schools and even their parents. So they knew what we were uh, struggling with and having to endure. And that made me feel very proud. They not only were teaching us, they were nurturing us. They said, now, this is what you're going to see once you get out there. This is what you'll be up against. So they tried to encourage us in any and every way they could to be the best that we could but uh, when you asked me uh well even from my first grade teacher and she just died a year ago who was she uh many
3: many galloway spence oh i didn't realize she passed oh yes yeah okay. she um. was
2: my first grade teacher in fact all of my uh, uh my second grade teacher was uh the uh mrs hawthorne her husband mm-hmm. was uh, a black was phys- one of two black physicians in columbia My third grade teacher was uh, Mildred Porter.
3: I remember. uh,
2: Whose husband was the principal of College Hill when I was there. Fourth grade teacher was uh, Luella uh, Stratton, uh, Ronald Ryan's uh, aunt, his mother's sister. Fifth grade was Mrs. E.B. Jones. She passed many years ago. And my sixth grade teacher was uh, Alma Johnson. They all were very encouraging, very inspiring people. And that's it. Uh,
1: I'm sorry. Go go ahead. Continue.
2: No. And then in high school, uh, they had a different system. Your homeroom teacher, you stayed with that same homeroom teacher through the from 7th through 12th grades. And mine was uh, Mrs. Uh, Jones, Evelyn Jones. And her husband was the principal of Coversmith Smith High for the seven years I was there. And she also was very encouraging. They were out of West Tennessee, Bolivar and Jackson, Tennessee, but very, very Encouraging people.
1: Um, what you're describing is a theme that I've heard at the Murray County Archives for some time now, talking to to various folks who uh, went to Carver Smith, that there was uh, – it was a place of learning, of course, but there was sort of a, a maternalism, for for lack of a better word, among the teachers who really nurtured the students in a way that I think most students certainly don't get in in modern times. That I, I, that I feel was a had a striking impact on most of the students that went through that it was a school became a continuation of home it became Absolutely. it became a, very much a part of the fabric of the community uh, in which the school uh, uh, was um, so I, I think that's a I think that's a, a really important point to to make that school was much more than just an academic setting Pl- that's right plus and most you
3: know- Excuse me. Plus, most of our teachers lived in the community. Well, they lived in the community with the school. Of course, I lived out in the country, but most of the teachers lived right in the community. The Mr. and Mrs. Jones lived across the street. They were just a part of the
2: community. And something else, too, b- being a, a good selling point for small towns, the teachers knew our parents. You couldn't get away with a lot of stuff
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and run home and pretended that you did otherwise. Uh, they knew the, your parents. They would call your parents. And so that was the kind of uh, environment under which we uh, were educated. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of uh, names, examples of uh, some students who attended school with me. I don't know if you've heard the name of uh, Ken Edmondson. Ken was producer of NBC Sports nationally for almost 20 years. He was native of Columbia. He was uh, one of my schoolmates, one year ahead of me. And I can think of Hazel Ogilvie, professor at uh, Cal Polytechnic for many years before she retired. She's still out in California, but there were so many people. The- Theophilus Lockridge, another very bright guy. These, and I, and I could go on and on and on, but uh, Mr. Price, there were so many outstanding people that came out of Columbia, and uh, many people who were native to Columbia would say, boy, where did they get that from? Right. And it, <laughs> From the experience that I've described to you, many people would say we, we we came from nothing. But like you've probably heard this expression, it's not where you're from, but where you're going that really counts in Ta- the final analysis.
1: Right, right. Talk talk to me about academics for a second. You have hand-me-down books, but it sounds like you have pretty incredible teachers who are using using those tools to the best of their ability you were thinking about moving on to college as a next step. How prepared were you for university coming out of Carver Smith school?
2: Well, quite frankly, I had no comparative reference since, uh, I was the first in my family to graduate from college, uh, to my knowledge. And, uh, one of my older brothers went, but he's after two years, was very discouraged of, with many different situations. He was being challenged by and he joined the Marine Corps and, um, so when I got into college, I just looked around. But uh, the other experiences that kept me interested in education was when I entered Tuskegee. That was the height of the civil rights movement in this country. Mm. And, uh, but the civil rights movement at the time was nonviolent. And it was not only very uh, challenging, it was very dangerous right. because of the nonviolence. And, uh, but I met so many different people from different walks of life. Even though Tuskegee was a small school with about 3,400 students, uh, the students came from just about every state in the union and 14 foreign countries, as I recall. So it's just that cross mixture of uh, relationships, introductions, uh, helped me even appreciate the importance of education more and more. But I'm not certain if I answered your question, though. <laughs> uh,
1: you, you did. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating. I, I was just curious to know if academically you were prepared to go on to college. Did Did you get the skills that you needed uh, to go on to university at Carver Smith, academically speaking?
2: I did. Well, without a doubt, I did. The only thing that I was short of was uh, more math and uh the math taught at Carver Smith only went to uh high as trigonometry did not offer calculus or any more advanced math at the time but uh, I took all the math that uh, the school uh, offered thinking I would really enjoy a career in as an engineer hmm. but uh, after I got to Tuskegee I decided maybe I better go back to the trumpet I was a trumpet player and I
1: still am a trumpet player <laughs> I saw that <laughs> I saw that about you.
2: A great trumpet player. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I've been playing with the uh, Cleveland Clinic orchestra in Cleveland for about 22 years. <laughs> but that's something I did on the side uh, in addition to my work on the bench.
1: Um were you in the were you in the band in school?
2: In high school, yes. I played in the marching band at Cover Smith, and I was offered to play uh the marching and concert bands at Tuskegee. But when I got down to Alabama and saw how hot and humid it was, (laughs) I wasn't about to go out there and march (laughs) in that heat. So I did play uh, four years in the concert band.
1: I have heard from local residents (laughs) for remembering Carver Smith and remembering uh, Mule Day and other parades. And that's, that's the thing that stood out in their mind, is watching the Carver Smith marching band, because they were a sight to behold. Uh, It was a very good band, according to most accounts.
2: Yeah, well, you know, uh, not only was uh, Columbia known as uh, the mule capital of the world, which uh, for years they had a a very vibrant mule day parade, but I understand it it ceased for many years, but it has uh, now been revived.
1: It has, and, uh, uh, with the exception of I, this year with coronavirus, of course. But, uh, oh, that's in, right. in, in right. most years, uh, some 100,000 people come from all over the world. Uh, from That's LA.
2: what I've heard. And to my great surprise, about a month ago, I see uh, a program, a TV program called uh, Mewtown something, Round uh, Roundtable. It's televised here <laughs> oh in many states, even Akron, Ohio. I've seen it two or three times.
1: Huh, Interesting.
2: And the first thing you see is the Columbia Courthouse. (laughs) (laughs) That
3: is interesting.
1: Uh, Joanne, I wanted to ask you as well. Uh, You've had an an amazing career in the business world. Uh, How would you rate your education at Carver-Smith?
3: I think very good. Uh, When I left uh, Carver-Smith, I went to TSU. And uh, one indicator was I was asked to join or participate in the very first university honors program and the students were selected based on their uh, ACT scores, math um, and science, English, I uh, opted to take the honors math course and the honors uh, biology course. So I thought very, very good.
1: So you were prepared academically as well. But uh, you
3: still have to work hard, you know. Well, of course. And yeah. you have to be have to be focused. When I went to um, TSU, my idea was to become a math teacher, and after the first— of course, I had where I had to observe students in the city. I changed my major from teaching to applied mathematics, so I did get a degree in math, but uh I didn't feel that I was liking at all as a result of attending Hor Smith.
1: Were there any particular teachers that had an influence on you?
3: Uh, probably the same as uh Judge Baxter. I dearly loved uh the principal, Mr. Jones and his wife, Mrs. Jones. They were just wonderful. Um, And I didn't take any classes from, the, from them. And wow. al- also, <laughs> are you surprised that I like
2: Mrs. Jones? <laughs> no, 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 no. She was one of my favorites also.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Mr. Beard, I didn't take any classes from Mr. Beard, but he was the one that encouraged me to go to college. And he said, if you're going to go, you need to take four years of math and four years of science and four years of history and four years of English. And I followed that track, and I found that it was um, it was uh, it was good
2: advice. Yeah, you might recall he was uh, Carver Smith's first uh, career
1: counselor.
3: Oh, I didn't know he was the first. Yeah, but he was. Yeah. You know, yeah. he, he passed away a few years ago down in West oh, Tennessee. Yeah,
1: sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, Judge, I looked you up in the Carver Smith Annual. <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly, you were salutatorian in the class of 1963.
2: Yes, so uh, one of my very bright classmates, Gil Crawford uh, Yokley now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her husband live in Nashville. She was a valedictorian, and uh, but I tell you what, I couldn't hold a torch to her. She was very bright, very athletic, and uh, it did not surprise me that she became the valedictorian.
1: What made you settle on Tuskegee University out of all the schools that, that you... Where else did you apply, by the way? Were there other schools?
2: Oh, most of the people graduating from uh, the Cover Smith would go to Tennessee State or to Fisk, mostly to Tennessee State and then to Fisk. And uh, I had what was it called? The Governor's board State at the time
3: uh-huh. went State, there.
2: Uh-huh. Went there for that program, and uh, I knew that had I gone to Tennessee State, I would be hanging out with too many of my boys from Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> so something told me I'd better consider. Uh, going elsewhere, and I mentioned to you how I was inspired uh, from the uh, biography on uh, George Washington Carver that I had read, and that inspired me to go to Tuskegee. Plus, uh, I'd heard about the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. My 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 elementary school principal, Mr. Porter, he was at Tuskegee during the time of the Tuskegee Airmen. He told me about Tuskegee. Huh. So uh, it was people like Mr. Porter and others uh, who told me that I would find Tuskegee a very, very uh, educational and a good challenging experience, but one that would make me proud. What really pointed out the experience they were telling me about was I was in, my wife and I were in France several years ago, and uh, I picked up a newspaper, and there it was on the front page, something about Tuskegee. And People there at this conference I was attending were asking me, where did I attend school? And I said, a small school in Alabama. I said, what was the name of it? I said, Tuskegee Institute. And they said, oh, we know of Tuskegee Institute. And that made me feel proud, you know?
1: Absolutely. Uh, what did you study there?
2: Political science, all four years.
1: Uh-huh. What, was, what was the thing that drew you to political science? Were you interested in a career in politics or you were thinking law at that point in time? Quite frankly,
2: out of ignorance, I asked a lot of people, I said, if you want to become a lawyer, and I was thinking law, what should you major in in college? And 99% of the people said you major in political science, and I didn't know any better, so that's what I signed up for once I got to Tuskegee. <laughs> uh, but after I got to law school, I found out during the first week, most of the people in law school came from all kinds of disciplines before entering law school. And I finally concluded that the uh, best fields to prepare yourself before going into law school was from any course of study that would allow you to do critical and analytical thinking, and a lot of reading and writing. Those would be the best.
1: That's wonderful. We're we're going to take our first break right now, uh, and when we come back, we'll continue with your story at university. Thank you for listening to History's Hook. We'll be right back.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. We're going to continue our conversation today with Judge Randolph Baxter, who uh, was from Columbia, Tennessee, and attended Carver Smith High School, a then-segregated uh, high school in Columbia, before going on to uh, the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, Judge Baxter, you mentioned you went to Tuskegee. You're studying political science, uh, for, for lack of a, a different option in your mind. <laughs> you were also oh, right. an ROTC student there, if I read correctly. Um, That's correct. What, what drew you to uh, the military?
2: Well, I told you, I, I came from a financially uh, poor area, and my family was no exception. I got to Tuskegee and found out that if I stayed in the RTC program, the Reserve Officer's Training Program, in my third year, I could make $50 a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a lot of money to me at the time. Right. So I signed up for the advanced program. But with the under- further understanding that by doing so, I was obligating myself to at least two years in the military, and had to accept a commission. Mm-hmm. So I accepted the commission, received my fifty dollars a month until I graduated and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. And that's how I uh, entered the military. And at the time, there was a the buildup of the war in Vietnam, and uh, I was commissioned a tank officer. Did my Initial training at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and my basic tank school was undertaken at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, where the armor school was located. From there, I went to uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, and from there to Fort Bliss, Texas, from there down to uh, the U.S. Army's uh, Jungle Warfare School on the uh, Panama Canal Zone, and from there, straight into Vietnam. So <laughs> that's my military history. I served with uh, an outfit called the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. You may have heard of it. It was commanded by the son of a famous uh, Army General, um, George Patton. Right. And, my, right. and the, my commanding officer there, when I arrived there, was George Patton, Jr., oh. which uh, carried with the regimental commander's title uh, of rank, that of uh, Full Bird Colonel. By the time he rotated back to the U.S., shortly thereafter, he was uh, nominated and appointed as a a Brigadier General. And he retired with two stars from the military. But uh, my time in Vietnam was a one-year tour, and I also served uh, in Cambodia. President Nixon expanded the war, sent uh, my unit to spearhead the invasion into into Cambodia at that time. And as you may recall, But the expansion of the war under President Nixon (laughs) caused quite an uprising here on the home front. A lot of college students uh, demonstrated college sit-ins and president's offices, the shootings at Kent State, shootings at Jackson State in Mississippi and other places around the country that really uh, gave rise to a lot of consternation.
3: Yeah, I it did because I think we my husband was at the University of Minnesota at the time, so I think that was about the same time period, right? In the seventies. 70- what,
1: what year were you in Vietnam?
2: Uh, for nineteen sixty eight, returned in I am sorry, nineteen sixty nine, returned in nineteen
1: seventy. Okay, so you are uh, we there, there right at the height of the troop buildup. Then uh, you mentioned the Eleventh yes. Armored Cavalry Regiment, known as the Black right. Horse Regiment, they are quite a famous quite a famous unit dating back uh, even prior to World War II. Um, You've rid of the black horse. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Uh, there, there are many pretty famous commanders out of there. Uh, General Abrams is another one who is associated with with that regiment, uh, of right. course, along, along with the Pattons. Uh, you mentioned you were a tank commander. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, I think you were a platoon commander. Uh, what, what type of tanks were you involved with?
2: Well, the main uh, tank at the time that the U.S. Army used was the uh, M60 tank. And... Uh, but when we got to Vietnam, because of the thick jungles we were fighting in, uh, we found out that uh, the two types of projectiles the M60 could fire through its main gun were not that effective. But the M48, which was used mostly in the Korean War and even some parts of uh, uh, World War II, allowed uh, the main gun to fire two projectiles. One was known as the... Uh, beehive round and the other ones known as the canister round the beehive was packed with thousands and thousands of steel flechettes the canister round was packed with thousands and thousands of uh steel darts and you can fire one of those through a thick triple canopy jungle and it could travel 300 meters long 50 meters wide and could just clear a a path that uh, <laughs> you would have to see to believe but it was very effective for the type of uh, jungle terrain we were fighting in so that's what uh we did over there
1: and so what what was the unit's primary mission as you said um, jungle warfare is not typically conducive to tank warfare uh in the in the in the, in the common sense uh, are you following other infantry units on the ground uh what is your what was the your platoon's primary mission
2: Well, just to reverse, the infantry normally came behind us because we had this massive firepower on tanks because each tank had the main uh, tank, and uh, it had a 50-caliber machine gun up in the cupola, the part where you saw the tank commander uh, sitting, and they had uh, two to three uh, M16 machine guns mounted. That was a lot of firepower. So the infantry was walking— behind us and between our tanks as we would advance forward. And uh, that was the configuration.
1: Did your when, unit see uh, a fair amount of combat?
2: Oh, uh, We saw a lot of combat because the main uh, mission of armor at that time, and probably still is, is to find the enemy and fix them. Of course, we would uh, have the Air Force come in. They would uh, soften up the areas where we were headed to to make sure that uh, we were not entrapped. Uh, surprisingly and uh, then they would uh, send the tanks tank units out and uh, we worked many times with the first armored cow you probably have seen that uh, yellow patch with the stripe down the side yes. uh, It was the one of the largest fighting units in uh, Vietnam and we were opconned or operationally connected to them on many missions
1: uh, you were commissioned as a second lieutenant. I think by the time you left uh, the military, you were a captain. So you went up a, a couple of ranks. Uh, yeah. d- while you were in the the army, had been integrated uh, as early as the late nineteen forties, I think. So you were commanding uh, men of men of uh, all races. Was that a challenge for you?
2: <laughs> it, it certainly was until I proved myself, uh, because I don't care where that men were from. Most these are mostly whites in my outfit, and uh, they didn't care where you were from, what school you went to, how you got your commission. They wanted to know one thing. Can you get us in and out of here alive hmm. once we have the next firefight? And that's what they call battles and combat firefights. And uh, you have to prove yourself. And uh, I'd never been in combat before, but you know, I thought I had decent training here stateside before I went over there, as well as the jungle uh, expert school down in Panama. But uh, after one or two firefights, the men are watching you just like they were watching the enemy, because the whites were saying, we haven't had a a black commander before. What does this guy know about combat? Many of them had been there six, eight, ten months, almost ready to go home. And they certainly didn't want to go home wounded or killed. And uh, so you really have to prove yourself and that. uh, you knew what you were doing. And uh, one thing that uh, they found out about me was that I knew how to navigate daytime at nighttime if we were hit by the enemy. At nighttime, you used uh, nighttime navigation devices, compasses, you had to know how to read a compass because there are no street signs, no street lights over there in the jungle. And then at the daytime, you had to know how to read a map to navigate. And after I proved effectively that I could, uh, I had a firm grasp on both of those uh, types of uh, technologies, if you call it, uh, that endeared me to them. Plus, I had a first uh, platoon sergeant. He was watching me like a hawk the first uh, few firefights <laughs> because he wanted to come home too. So in the main, it was the Lord that brought me in, brought me out of, out of there, but uh it was one of the roughest times of my life, and I I, I I
1: don't hesitate to say that you were awarded a bronze star for valor. um Do you care to tell us for what action you received that?
2: <laughs> I always see for being over there in the first place <laughs> <laughs> but uh it was uh if you ever see somebody who said they were in combat and they enjoyed it, one or two things that person was lying or that person was never in combat. Combat is is not for weaklings. I mean, you don't know if you're going to be alive the next second or next 10 seconds. And uh, even at night, you don't sleep with both eyes closed. I mean, it's just that dangerous end. So I take my hat off to those who, like myself, made it in and out uh, in one piece. But I really take my hat off to those who are less fortunate who uh, gave the ultimate sacrifice that we all could uh, be where we are today. But you have to understand, and you said it earlier, that I was there during the peak of that war, and that's when we had, I think, 55,000 men and women over there, mostly men, uh, in Vietnam. So we had a lot of firepower, had a lot of, uh, especially from the air. And
1: uh, Did you lose friends? You know, I'm sorry? Did you lose uh, friends in Vietnam? Oh, yeah,
2: and and, and relatives, too. Uh, The principal at Carver Smith High School, who uh, once the schools were integrated, I think you said 69. For some reason, I was thinking it was 66, but let's say 69. When uh, she was one of my classmates, we graduated together from Carver Smith. Her husband uh, and I were in Vietnam at the same time. He was killed over there. And uh, one of my my brothers was over there at the same time, was allowed to escort his body back for, for burial. But uh, I lost the uh, classmates who were with me at uh, uh, Carver Smith as well as at Tuskegee. Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned or alluded to what was going on in the United States at the time uh, that you were in Vietnam uh, as the war is escalating. So so is uh, the sort of the fight on the home front against the war. What was returning to the United States following your tour of duty in Vietnam like?
2: Uh, well, you probably uh, have uh, read some accounts that it was not like returning from World War II, Korea, or World War One, where, you know, there were ticker tape parades and so forth. Uh, nobody wanted to hear about what uh, you did in Vietnam. We, we received no welcome home uh, parades or anything like that. If people ask, knew that you were in Vietnam, they wanted to know how many people did you kill when you were over there, you know, hmm. uh, things like that. So there was not uh, a lot of conversations they wanted to hear from you or you from them, because it was pretty much all negative. Only in recent years has a different light somewhat been shed on those experiences, but uh, it certainly was not uh, a welcome home type celebration for us.
3: Do you think that attributed to a lot of the problems the returning soldiers had as far as getting readjusted in the communities, the... Depression or some of the issues
2: that they had. I think to some extent it, it did. Uh, more precisely, I cannot say, but I'm sure it had a lot to do with that, Joe. Uh, and uh, some of the same prejudices that we experienced before we left to go in, just like in World War II and the Korean War, we came back. Many of those were still here. And uh, but that's something that uh, we had to deal with. And thank God, many of those have been overcome. But we still have. Some ways to go.
1: You went right back to work. Uh, coming back to civilian life, it sounds like you took a day job and attended law school at night. Uh, well, at-
2: I finished one year of law school before I uh, was called in. Right? They had a critical shortage of a critical shortage of tank officers when I received my commission, and um, but they allowed me to uh, enter law school. I stayed there for one year before that was a critical shortage, and they called me oh, in. Uh, to active duty
1: and you're at the University of Akron is where you that's right okay
2: at the University of Akron And when I finished my tour of duty uh, in um, Vietnam Cambodia I returned to the US I stayed one additional year to make the rank of captain I commanded a company tank company out in uh, Fort Lewis Washington in Tacoma and that's when I uh, completed that uh, assignment I was discharged from the Army, honorably, I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> and I reentered law school and uh, at the University of Akron and finished my last two years there. And uh, let's see, I think that was 1976, I believe.
1: Okay. You opened your own law practice at that point?
2: Well, I took a job with B.F. Goodrich's company initially. I worked in salary administration for two and a half years. Then I got a job at the city of Akron. I uh, became the deputy director of public service, which was in charge of sanitation, street maintenance, the municipal airport. You know, it was a great administrative job, but it had nothing to do with the law. And that's where I was still focused on getting into the law. And a friend of mine was appointed the U.S. Attorney for the northern half of Ohio by President Carter. When he got that appointment, he invited me to join his staff as an assistant us attorney or federal prosecutor and uh, i stayed there for about uh seven and a half eight years and in 1985 i applied and was appointed to the us uh, to the uh, us bankruptcy court stayed there uh, with a 28 year appointment incredible but um, i uh, i served uh, i i only uh, served 26 years because i was really burnt out and I told them I had to get out of there because at the time my court in Cleveland was the fourth busiest bankruptcy court in the nation. And when I asked Washington for more judicial help to help with the case, heavy caseload, they said no. <laughs> and when I asked if that was the final decision, and they said yes, I said, write this date down, August 15th, 2011. And they said, what's so magical about that date? And I said, that's my birth date. And I never forget what I'm going to do on my birthday. (laughs) So they said, what are are your plans? I said, I'm going to leave this job. And I did. I left (laughs) there August 15th, 2011. And uh, I've been retired ever since.
1: Um, During your eight years uh, in Cleveland as assistant U.S. attorney, are there any cases that stand out in your mind during your time there?
2: Oh, sure. I can think of several of, but one in particular, remember the swine flu epidemic? Yes we had, uh, they were expecting uh, a global pandemic like we have now with uh, the current- uh,
1: Coronavirus. Mm -hmm.
2: Coronavirus, thank you. And, uh, but it did not hit at that magnitude, but it was the first one that had hit this country since 1901. That was one that killed thousands of uh, people here in the US. So a lot of people who took the shot, the swine flu shot, a contracted a disease process called the Guillain-Barré syndrome, or GBS. And many of them blamed it on the uh, swine flu shot that they took. Hmm. I was one of three federal prosecutors in my office assigned to defend the government against those lawsuits. And we had, I think, 52 of those filed in the northern half of Ohio. Uh, fortunately, we won all of those except one. But uh, that took a lot of work. It exposed me to a lot of medical experts, and uh, from around the country, and uh, that was uh, one type of classes, uh, cases that I represented. Uh-huh. That gave me great experience. Also, um, I can think of others. I represented the Food and Drug Administration on many matters. I was in the civil division of our office, and uh, I. Some people would apply to put food, drug, and cosmetic products on the market without waiting for the FDA to give final approval because they were eager to get it on the market, make a profit. And I, uh, representing the FDA, went after many uh, such individuals and companies who would do such a thing because it endangered the the general public to uh, put something on the market without FDA approval. Uh, Those come to mind.
1: Uh, those those are fascinating cases. It gave you a, a, a wide breadth of of knowledge and expertise, I would imagine.
2: Oh, yeah. And going into that kind of office, uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is part of the U.S. Department of Justice, which, I don't know if you know this, It's the largest law firm in the world. Right. And it's headquartered out of Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Attorney's Office will be the field uh, lawyers for the Justice Department. We will be the ones— who are going to court and try the cases for them. And they gave me tremendous experience.
1: What is the highest court, uh, that you argued a case in? Well, even though I was admitted to uh, practice before the U
2: S Supreme court, when I was in the, uh, U S attorney's office, I never argued, uh, appeals there. I did argue before the, uh, U S court of appeals for the sixth circuit, which is based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, uh, there are 13 circuit courts of appeals in the U S and our state, along with Tennessee, Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio, those four states handle all federal appeals from uh, those states. And uh, I was admitted to practice before the Sixth circuit court of appeals. I was also admitted to practice before the federal court of appeals in Washington. And I think that was about it.
1: So in 1984, 1984- Five, I think you said, uh, or 1986, you were appointed U.S. bankruptcy court judge for the Northern District of Ohio. You were the first African American to hold that position in that district, and I think the only the ninth African American to hold a position of bankruptcy court judge. First, the, what, did, what did that job entail, and secondly, what did it mean for you to be the first African American to hold that important position?
2: Well, it may not surprise you, uh, Mr. Price, but uh, at that time and even today. Uh, you didn't have a lot of blacks in a lot of positions, so it was not an, that uncommon to be the first. <laughs> like uh, I think I, w- I could have been the first, or second black to be appointed as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, hmm. and uh, there in Cleveland. Uh, but uh, it was a nice honor. But uh, take you know—it was a lot of hard work. But I, I've never been afraid of hard work. Did not have a lot of experience in the courts at the time. So that was a challenge to me because most of the people of the lawyers who were on the other side of me were out of the Ivy League schools, like Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Stanford, and so forth. And I came out of the University of Akron. And, of course, the big law firms hiring out of the uh, Ivy League schools and other notable schools, they would want to know, where did you go to law school, you know, so they could poo-poo you. (laughs) (laughs) they will will quickly tell you where they went. I would never tell them. I said, I'll I'll allow you to make uh, one assumption. That is, you can assume I finished from somebody's law school and I'll make the same assumption about you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, after the trial was over, I had, believe it or not, I had a not stick stick mentality at the time. That's not a nice thing to say. (laughs) But uh, when I would win the case, they would say, okay, Baxter, you never told me which law school. And I said, oh, University of Akron, I thought you knew. <laughs> but uh, I, I was blessed to win a lot of cases. And that's what got me uh, appointed as chief of the appellate division at the Sixth Circuit for my district. Because the, uh, the judges there from Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan had seen me a lot of times arguing appeals. And uh, that did not hurt my chances years later, uh, when I was applying for the bankruptcy judgeship, it's the judges from the courts of appeals who appoint bankruptcy judges. And uh, I'm vain enough to say that I think they were impressed with the way I handled myself. So they appointed me to the bankruptcy court in 1985.
1: Along with this really incredible career, Judge, you served on the boards of Tuskegee University, Lake Erie College. Cleveland State University Foundation, Blossom Music Center, Leadership Cleveland, and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Federal Bar Association, the Akron Urban League, the Akron NAACP, Western Reserve Legal Services, Western Reserve Historical Society, Stan Hewitt Hall and Gardens, Akron Community Foundation, the Boy Scouts of America Great Trail Council, and the House of the Lord." And as you said, you've even played trumpet for the Cleveland Clinic Orchestra. Judge, that's an impressive list in and of itself of volunteer contributions to uh, your community. What does that desire to serve the community, where does that come from? Well, being a public
2: servant uh, has always piqued my interest. And my wife on many occasions has told me one of my worst vices is I don't know how to say no to people when they invite me to serve. (laughs) And uh that's how I got myself into a lot of these. When I left the bench, I was on nine boards, and it was like crazy. You know, that's that's unbelievable to serve on nine boards, but some kind of way it worked out. And uh, but when people would hear that uh, you'd have some free time, they would call and ask. That's how I became president of the uh, state president for AARP for <laughs> so the state of Ohio.
1: That that was going to be my next point oh. is that uh, after you retired. From a stellar career where you worked incredibly hard, you took on, I think, probably what is considered one of the hardest volunteer roles in the in the country as president of a large organization like AARP of Ohio. That's a that's a very responsible position that you're doing as a volunteer.
2: Years to uh, be a
1: member of. Are you there, Judge? Con probably one of the most responsible volunteer positions in the country. Uh, you're president of AARP of Ohio, which is a huge organization that you're overseeing as a volunteer. Well,
4: about 26 million members here in Ohio.
1: Six million members. It's incredible. So what? what is your day-to-day role? Well,
4: uh, I've worked in conjunction with the state director. We collaborated on uh, what we were going to advocate before the state legislature, before the Congress, and uh, the various outreach programs that we have created uh, to cover all five sectors of the state. The state president primarily was responsible for honchoing the volunteers, the active volunteers. The state director, of course, would uh, be responsible for directly administering the staff of about 15 to 20 people here in Ohio. and uh, but. We covered the entire state, uh, taking objectives uh, from the national office in Washington, as well as uh, local initiatives, state initiatives, and other ideas that uh, the volunteers felt that we should pursue.
1: Are you called upon to testify before Congress on behalf of uh, senior citizens of Ohio?
4: Yes, we have uh, uh, special volunteers. Who specifically cover the uh, Congress, uh, as well as those who cover the state legislature. And uh, personally, I've not, I've gone down for what we call lobby day once or twice a year in Washington to meet with our congressional delegation. But personally, I've never addressed a congressional committee on issues that uh, AARP is espousing. But we have a special people to do that very thing. But I have addressed uh, this uh, state legislature here in Ohio.
1: You've led a remarkable life. Uh, you've been an honor to uh, your hometown of Columbia. Uh, tell me, what was the most memorable or rewarding position you've held in your career? Is there something that stands out out of all of the things that you've done that you consider the most rewarding portion of your life?
4: Well, I tell you. One you did not mention, I served as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I've always been fascinated with uh, foreign affairs, uh, international relations, and I served uh, with with that board out of New York for about 14 years, and uh, uh, that really gave me exposure to a lot of national and international people that you would recognize by name if I was to to call their names, and uh, that was very fascinating. But uh, during the work I did for AARP, certainly would be among the top.
1: And uh, You're still with AARP currently?
4: Yes, I'm still a member, an active member of ARP, And uh, they know that any time they wish to call upon me as uh, President Emeritus, I would uh, be happy to assist if time was available.
1: Judge Baxter, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. Uh, we've learned so much. Thank you so much for spending time well, with us.
4: Well, thank you for thinking of me, and Joy, so nice to hear you again. <laughs> thank and, you. And uh, I hope someday to get down there to uh, see both of you. And uh, That'll be wonderful. I look forward I, to it. Yeah, I never forgot that Columbia is known as the temple of the universe. <laughs> I don't know if they still address it like that or not.
3: Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Randy.
1: That concludes our show for today. On behalf of my co-host, Joanne McClellan, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for A Journey Through Time.
1: Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get
4: in
0: there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a
4: locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic, downtown Columbia.
0: Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC.
2: This is Clayton Harris, and you're listening to 101.7 WKOM Columbia.